This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Let me just say that, you know, what I think I've been asked to speak about today has, is basically the, the Aquinas' approach to the interpretation of, of the biblical literature, the biblical texts, effectively something like how Aquinas understands prophecy and divine inspiration, and how this relates to some of the difficult teachings, at least difficult for us in our time and place, as we consider especially the moral dimensions of the Old Testament. So this will not be a comprehensive presentation of Aquinas' views, and it certainly won't be a comprehensive presentation of the biblical text on the aforementioned passages, or of biblical theories of inspiration. You know that there are many biblical theories of inspiration in the Catholic tradition, many of which are permissible. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of the particularities of Aquinas' view. And there will be some questions about how this touches on reasonable religious belief and sort of philosophical questions one could pose to Christians or Christians might pose to themselves in the light of natural reason. So I want to just start, I'm going to sketch out probably for the first 10 minutes or so, maybe more or less, Aquinas' view of um, the, the, the literal and spiritual senses of Scripture. What is the literal sense of scripture? What are the spiritual senses of scripture and how are they related? Actually, in the Middle Ages and the High Middle Ages, it was much more typical to speak about this topic than to speak about biblical inspiration, which is a more modern concern, an interesting one, uh, that touches upon the nature of the author. When Aquinas looks at the biblical author, he tends to speak rather of the category of prophecy, of what is a prophet, what is to know things that cannot be otherwise known by philosophers. You might say prophets complement philosophers, but they're different because they know things that philosophers cannot know. By they, they convey divine revelation. I'm not going to speak much about prophecy in Aquinas. I'm going to speak more about what the text is that emerges from the prophetic revelation and the inspired, assisted writing of the human author that gives us what you could call um, the, the senses of Scripture. Okay, so here's a place then to begin what is the literal sense of scripture for Aquinas? What does scripture denote literally? Now, if you ask that to most people, I think well, a lot of people, they'll say, well, he probably, it probably is trying to figure out what the author's intention is. What did the author intend when they wrote, say, oh, I don't know, the author or authors of, you know, Exodus, I think 13, the passage on the parting of the Red Sea and the, the delivery of the uh, Israelites from servitude in Egypt as they cross over presumably perhaps to the Sinai Peninsula or something like that. Well, Aquinas doesn't actually say that the literal sense is concerned with the intention of the human author. In this sense, he's not at all like most modern biblical theorists or theologians of inspiration. He actually claims that the literal sense pertains to the reality signified by the human author of the text. So the literal sense for example, the passage I forementioned would be about, would be the reality, let's just say for the sake of argument, that there is a historical event of the parting of the Red Sea or miracle of the Red Sea and a crossing of the Red Sea. So that is the reality signified, and therefore the literal sense of scripture terminates in the reality denoted uh, itself. Notice that, I mean, a couple of things that follow from this. First of all, you can, denote a sig you can denote a historical reality in significantly diverse ways and still be denoting literally that reality. 
So for example, there are, uh, right after they cross the Red Sea passage, I believe it's like in Exodus 15, there's uh, the Song of Miriam, which is a war poem. It's a poem, it's a chant, it's a hymn about the event. Now it refers to the same event, so its literal sense would terminate in the event itself, but it refers to it in a different human mode, namely through archaic near Middle Eastern poetry. And so analogously, you could say uh, the Song of Songs in the Bible is a love poem that mm, it could be argued uh, denotes literally the mystical relationship of God and Israel in the Old Covenant. It denotes it through the through uh, love poetry, right? As where, like for example, uh, Exodus uh, twenty-two through twenty-four, which has covenant material, denotes the covenant with Israel through the medium of law connoted by God through prophecy through Moses and his successors to create a web of a contractual, as it were, and divine covenant between God and Israel. So you can denote something that's the same thing. Uh, through many modes of signification. And then, of course, we could add, add from a modern point of view to Aquinas, studying the historical critical circumstances of the composition of biblical text could help us understand a great deal about the mode of signification. How do they write and think at that time? What are the conventions? Uh, who are the editors? How did the text evolve? How was the text compiled? Well, those could all be relevant things. But in the end of the day, you have to think about what does the text, after it's all gone through that historical composition, actually denote about reality. And I'll come back to that a little bit. I mean, one of the questions that then ari arises, of course, for the mind, theologically or philosophically, is, well, are we to believe God has actually done things in history, which, you know, Orthodox Christianity answers affirmatively, that there are things that God has done in history that are supernatural in, in origin and effect, you know, such as truly electing a people who are relatively insignificant to become the people of Israel in a real supernaturally inaugurated covenant that would, you know, be sustained through living prophetic revelation and terminate or culminate in the incarnation of God in human nature, and that that uh, that incarnate that mystery of incarnation is is that of Jesus of Nazareth, who was the person of the Son of God who truly died and was truly bodily resurrected from the dead. So you have you have to see how you know. Uh, the church over time has made a set of judgments about what is stable, solid, and, and significantly um, inalterable in the revelation regarding the prior history. Uh, if, you know, and that, that historical revelation is a dimension of revelation. It's certainly not for Aquinas the summit of revelation. The summit of revelation is actually knowledge of the Holy Trinity, of God in himself. But it has happened in and through historical events, which are signified literally. Now, that being said, Aquinas then says there are three other senses of scripture, and this is a typical partition you find in the Middle Ages. He has his own version of it, his own theory about it. The moral sense, the typological sense, and the anagogical sense. And these senses of scripture, he says, build on the literal realities denoted themselves, the realities denoted literally themselves, and are, in, uh, as it were, mm, uh, presented to us insofar as the literal realities are depicted to us literally. I'll explain what I mean by that. So if, for example, let's say um, in the New Testament, uh, John chapter six depicts the confession of Peter after the bread of life discourse. Jesus has just talked about the Eucharist. This is uh, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have life in himself. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life in yourself. And they're confounded. 
And there are people who, go, you know, who are dismayed and, and leave the, the group of disciples. And at the end of that chapter, he, he turns to Peter and says, will you also leave me? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You, Lord, have the words of eternal life. Now, for the sake of argument, I would say the literal sense here is a conversation between Peter and Jesus taking place on the shores of, of, uh, of the Galilee, of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. But in terms of the moral sense, what is that teaching us? Well, the moral sense that's built into the literal sense, as it were, emerges from it is the act of faith, the act of trust, the act of surrender, in fact, to the word of Christ over and beyond what we understand of it. So he's just said a bunch of things that are very hard to understand and that they're dismayed by. And this sort of surrender to the word of Christ as authoritative, seeking understanding, you might say faith seeking understanding, is the moral significance of that act of Peter, or at least so I would argue. But there could be lots of other ones. Now, Aquinas notes that sometimes uh, the literal sense and the moral sense are simply identical. A good example are the Proverbs. The Proverbs are just a bunch of moral teachings. Or when St. Paul teaches things moral, has moral and ethical discourse, the literal sense is he's denoting moral, moral teaching. Right? So that's already, so now you have a kind of complicated way in which you're thinking about how moral events can teach us things. I mean, think about, to go back to Exodus, um, the, uh, I'll talk about it later, the chastisement of the Egyptians by the killing of the firstborn. Uh, the moral sense, I mean, that's a literal, it's, it's supposed to, I think, denote some kind of literal event, but the moral sense of that is that Pharaoh has transgressed the prerogatives of human political leadership by believing he can take human life indiscriminately based on his own prerogatives, and he's chastised for it. Now you can also talk about what it says about God, which I will talk about a little bit later. But the point is, there's a moral sort of sense incumbent in the literal sense. However, when you look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, they're just moral teachings. I mean, they, they are embodied in the covenant, and they have their, their kind of complex context in the mystery of the covenant with Israel, which it's, you know, itself foreshadows Christ. But there, there is a kind of literal moral sense. The typological sense are the events of an earlier period insofar as they reflect and anticipate a later period. So uh, Aquinas says, for example... Uh, the Ten Commandments given on the mountain in Mos uh, by, by God to Moses anticipate the Sermon on the Mountain, where Christ reinterprets those commandments for us. Or the covenant with Israel typologically anticipates the fulfillment of the covenant in Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and in the uh, inauguration of God's covenant with all of humanity in the church. So typologically, things can foreshadow things. And we typically think about this. And the prophets make a strong allusion to typological significations that should be fulfilled somehow, somewhere, such as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, which is probably the most famous typological image that we claim, or that the New Testament itself claims primarily, is fulfilled in Christ. But also Aquinas thinks that the um, events of Christ's own life are typologically indicative of the life of the church. So when Jesus sits in the boat and teaches the crowds, the boat typologically symbolizes the church. And Christ is present in the church now, alive in the resurrection and in the Holy Spirit, teaching us in the bark of Peter, in, in the boat of the fishermen of Galilee. Uh, you know, so there's typological significations there. Uh, there's, a, there's lots of other examples one can give of how the church is signified or denoted by anticipation in the life of Jesus. The anagogical sense is eschatological, meaning it points towards the ultimate things or the end of the world. So a famous case would be um, to take a really fundamental image. 
Isaac asks Abraham, a passage I'll talk about later, uh, Father, where is the lamb? Isaac's kind of starting to suspect maybe that he's the lamb. He's going to be, where is the ram or the lamb that will be sacrificed? Um, and so he denotes the fact that uh, there, there is going to be an ep uh, epical sacrifice that takes place on a Mount Horeb or Mount Moriah or whatever, Mount Moriah. Anyway, I forget the name of the mountain. And, you know, it's supposed to be probably Jerusalem. But the point is, if you look forward, John the Baptist looks at Christ and says, behold, the Lamb of God, which may be an indication that he's um, the Lamb that was to be slain at the foundations of the whole covenant of faith with Abraham. It may also be a fulfillment of the idea of the suffering servant as a lamb led to slaughter in, I in the Isaiah 50 through 53 material. But anyway, however you take all that, you've got this sort of signification of Christ as the lamb, the one sacrificial lamb, that then is retaken in the book of the Apocalypse, in the Revelation, where you have the lamb in heaven who was once slain, who's now alive, and his light fills the city of God on the last, in the last chapters um, of the book of Revelation. Okay, so that's obviously like typological, but in another sense, that lamb imagery is eschatological because it points towards Christ who's died and who's resurrected as the sort of source of grace for the whole church, illuminating the church in the eschaton. And so many things in the, in the, in the gospels can point us towards ultimate um, eschatological situations. Um, now Aquinas says in the book of Revelation, again, sometimes the eschatological claims are the literal sense. So if it says, for example, God will raise the living uh, and judge the living and the dead, at the end of time, like the literal sense there is eschatological. That's where sometimes that anagogical or eschatological sense is anticipated. Okay, so I say all this to, just to denote that Aquinas's structure of reading the Bible is interesting and complicated. It takes, it takes account of the humanity of the Bible, uh, but it also looks at, you might say, a, a rich conception of a multi-layered conception of inspiration uh, in which at the center of it, in, in many respects, is a theology of the divine economy, of how the, the mystery of creation, uh, creation of the human being made in the image of God, fall, uh, initial redemption, uh, covenant with Israel, uh, coming of Christ, mystery of the church, eschatological expectation, all this, you might say, unfold, this drama unfolds on the stage of reality, and the Bible points us towards the inscape the landscape or inscape, you might say, the inner structure of the divine economy understood in light of God. And for Aquinas, it's always to point you back to actually understanding who God is. I mean, if, if you ask, why is the Bible inspired? Why was it given to us? Why all this prophecy, all this rigmarole? Well, so we can actively study uh, the word of God in view of gazing on God contemplatively in this life, growing in love of God, and then being fulfilled by the vision of God in the world to come. So it's a very theocentric conception of inspiration. Now I'm going to turn to a specific area. I'm going to get more and more specific as I go on. So that was very general. Now I'm turning to a specific thing, which is the moral sense of scripture. Now there's a lot of debate, uh, even among people who might be uh, prone to take Aquinas's lead on understanding inspiration. There's a lot of debate about how to understand the moral sense. And I'm just going to give you uh, a set of bullet points because I'm going to summarize my own presuppositions. And I'm summarizing my presuppositions here because other people have other ones, and you should recognize that some of the things I'm saying are controversial. This will definitely affect how I read things like the, um, the so-called dark passages of the Old Testament. 
So the first thing I want to um, say is that I take it that the moral sense of Scripture is infallible, that God does not uh, reveal anything erroneous about himself, and that God does not command anything intrinsically evil in the Old or New Testament. Now, that, of course, sets the bar very high to have to defend the Old Testament and its moral teachings, but it's good to just be clear about it. I mean, as you may know, there's a very, very famous argument about this in the history of Christianity, which stems from Gnosticism and Manichaeanism, which St. Augustine was not a little affected by in his 10 years as a Manichaean, which is the argument that the Old Testament, because it contains so much that seems morally imperfect, simply cannot come from God. It must either be false revelation, or if it's true revelation, it comes from a God who is evil. And that uh, opposition to the Old Testament, which was manifest in Manichaeanism in the ancient world, is repeated in, in numerous sophisticated ways in the Enlightenment by naturalists and deists who object to the Old Testament as revelation based on the moral content of the Old Testament. Um, so I'm just basically saying I think that the Old Testament's revealed by God. It contains infallible, infallible divine teaching. It, com it commands us to obey in faith the revelation of God. God does not himself command anything intrinsically evil. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and accept that, uh, you might say, challenge. Second, um, although some in the Calvinist world might disagree with this, I think most Protestants would agree with this rather more or less stable and certain teaching in the Catholic tradition, that the Old Testament is less perfect than the New Testament morally. So all of it, it could have, it could be defensible in some respect, situ, in a situated way, but it is also less perfect morally. That could be because it, that there's a lot of ways things can be less perfect. They can be less perfect because they're in a time that's more, less morally enlightened and the context in which God is teaching is less morally enlightened, at least in some respects. It could be less perfect because what it commands is the less perfect good. It could be less perfect because it's more in accord with nature and less in accord with grace. So, you know, I'm just noting that I think the Old Testament is less perfect. It also could be less perfect because less has been manifest. There's just less information. Secondly, the Old Testament is given in view of the New Testament, which is the more perfect and maximal expression of God's moral teaching. So, I mean, I'm just operating with a Catholic traditional hermeneutic, which is the Old Testament must be read in light of the Christ, Christocentrically, in light of the mystery of, of, of God revealed in the, uh, in the ultimate manifestation, which is given to the apostles, Christ the apostles, by Christ, and through the apostles in the New Testament era. And like thirdly, I would say our understanding of what's revealed implicitly in the New Testament can grow over time. So we're not obliged to say that the New Testament must make evident to us, for example, that slavery must be abolished or that uh, nuclear weapons may never be used on innocent civil populations. There are things we're going to infer over time from the perfection of the principles given in the New Testament, but they may take time for us to understand and for them to work in human culture. In addition, I have a, a three more bullet points on the Old Testament. Um, sometimes the revelation of moral truth given by God or effectuated by the prophets of the Old Testament are given in historical conditions that do delimit to limit or delimit the nature and scope of that revelation. Now, I'm not saying falsifies, but I'm saying delimits. So that, you know, you could say, well, why doesn't God, say, take, you, take I'm coming back to these examples, but say you have a culture of ancient sl slavery or even of total war. Total war meaning you don't just kill the, the combatants, but sometimes the whole village. So if you have these 
Old Testament context, if it's really from God, wasn't he just zap people so that they leave these contexts completely aside and move way outside the ordinary? Well, he can. In some, in some respects, God did and does. But in other respects, God seems to work from within the world of secondary causes, within the world of human beings as true agents of truth seeking and truth sharing in their given cultural time and place. And so it doesn't seem like grace in this sense destroys nature or simply repudiates it or replaces it. But when fallen human nature is living in a certain cultural context, God tends to work in and through it over time. That's not a kind of relativism. I don't think it's an excuse of relativism, but it is a contextual consideration. I mean, it's dangerous if it tends towards relativism. And it could also be used to kind of make the Old Testament irrelevant, which I don't want to do for moral reasons. Um, also, just this thing, you know, Aquinas' theory of prophecy is such that it can be, the divine revelation is received, at least in times, at times, in accord with the limited cultural understandings of the human prophetic authors and their situations. So people who write the New Testament write in Greek, with Greek terminology, sometimes rather bad Greek or simple Greek. Uh, it's, there's no special Holy Ghost Greek, in my view. It's just bad ancient Greek, but it's, you know, the, God actually probably wants to teach us something by revealing ultimate truth through fishermen, um, as opposed to philosophers. But so likewise, in the Old Testament, you can have God revealing himself in and through the limited understandings of human prophetic authors in their situations. He is truly enlightening them. There is true human limitation. And lastly, um, we grow in our understanding of the moral teaching of the whole canon of the Old and New Testament together in the church collectively over time as the church through time collectively discerns the moral teaching of the revelation. I'm not saying the church invents the revelation. That would be modernist. I'm saying the church receives the revelation and over time comes to understand and be changed by that revelation. Now, as a Catholic, I believe that moral teaching in the church is, is through her, her long history on earth, consistent, non-relative, non-contradictory, and does develop organically in logically coherent ways. I'm making a head nod there to Cardinal Newman on the development of doctrine. Um, but it also is a moral teaching that remains otherworldly, countercultural, and often exasperating to the pagan mind of those who receive the revelation and may initially be scandalized by it. Now, there's good scandal and bad scandal. God can cause scandal to our minds when he gives us moral teachings that seem shocking to us but are actually meant to shock us into change and conversion. There can also be bad scandal if we use divine revelation to um, give rational warrant to things that are unreasonable or unfair or wrong. Okay, I mean, there's famous cases of, you know, 19th century preaching in the Protestant tradition in the American South in favor of child slavery, and that's to be repudiated, but it's not always obvious to everybody in every case what is to be repudiated and isn't based on the word of God. Okie doke, so now I'm moving to, uh, I'm, believe it or not, I'm sort of making progress, you know, Dominicans are famous for being long talkers, it's a terrible problem, but anyway, so. I'm not moving too slowly, though. So I'm moving now, in light of those principles, to the idea of dark passages in the Old Testament. 
and I'm going to give you some specific cases. But I want to start by talking about the Old Testament as a as a as a treasury of light, because um, it's first and foremost it's bad to start off. In fact, wrong to start off with the Gnostic and Manichaean idea that the Old Testament is first to be thought of as a dark place that we have to apologize for in light of the New Testament. In fact, most people who have that view often end up trying to apologize for the New Testament as another dark uh, place with sets of dark passages, St. Paul saying all kinds of embarrassing things we shouldn't have to believe today, and they end up trying to replace the New Testament by what um, Cardinal Newman called in the 19th century doctrinaire liberalism. I mean, we first have to say the Old Testament is revelation, and it is filled with, it's luminous, it teaches us about the transcendence, goodness, and mercy of God, and God is depicted as uh, always just and merciful, as uh, inaugurating a covenant with humanity by grace in the first creation, and after our uh, sin, uh, first sin of our first parents, and then repeated sins of the human race, God is depicted as inaugurating a saving covenant with Israel destined to affect the whole of the human race, and so his saving designs and his elevating designs of giving us divine life by grace are uh, depicted as fundamental. It's only within that context that we should understand anything to do with the punishments of God, which are a part of the covenant. There are the promises, and there are also the punishments. But those punishments, if understood within that larger context of God's goodness and mercy, his covenant of grace, and his redemptive designs, those punishments have to be understood as, as redemptive. That's to say they're ordered towards salvation, typically. And they are also proportionate. Uh, underlying them is the transcendent justice and mercy of God, which is mysterious and hard for us to measure. But in general, uh, the, the way justice is depicted is, is contextualized by goodness and mercy and is uh, the source of proportionate punishments. And it's also meant to undo and give the lie to all kinds of idolatrous practices, false projections onto God that are anthropomorphic and horrific that would see God as subjecting us to all kinds of tortures or uh, disproportionate punishments or mistaken and superstitious practices. Now, that being said, even if you accept that fundamental set of claims, and you, you know, obviously all those claims can be and should be illustrated by recourse to you know, biblical passages, a deep and rich theology of the Old Testament and attention to particular authors and traditions and themes, but we don't have time for that. I'm just affirming that that's my, you know, background set of convictions and, and orientations. But even if we start with that, we still have some, position, some positions in the Bible, or some ideas where there are moral teachings that should trouble us or at least raise questions for us. And, you know, there's nothing really wrong with that. Origen in the third century said that Christianity he said, why doesn't the Bible just give you transparent propositional truth that's kind of evident in the way that kind of maxims of uh, geometry or axioms of geometry are evident, so forth. Um, and Origen says, God inspired the Bible through human authors in a vastly complicated way to make us more intelligent about God, because we're meant to cooperate with the divine revelation by being vexed by it and reflecting on it. So. A person who's never vexed is certainly never going to become a theologian. Um, Augustine was often vexed. Aquinas at least makes a living asking questions sometimes and also uh, taking generous account of objections. 
It's all about objections and questions. Even while he's contemplating God, uh, Cardinal Newman said a thousand difficulties do not make a single doubt, but he entertained difficulties throughout his whole writing corpus. And so the problem is, as an ordinary Christian believer, when you start to get bothered by things and you start to think about them, you embrace initially, necessarily, somewhat the vocation of a theologian. And it's better to just, it's like learning to swim when the water's a little cold, it's better just go ahead and get in there and get used to the temperature. So you have to take on the fact that like there's, it's complex and then, you know, you have to be patient. There's faith seeking understanding and you don't repudiate the Bible at the first sign of some difficulty, at least not if you're kind of a serious, ser going to give the theological tradition a serious hearing. So I want to start with a, a peculiar example, which you may think is strange or not problematic but I want to argue is um, actually very fundamental to everything with regards to dark passages. And that's Genesis at the beginning after Adam and Eve sinned and God removes the tree of life and subjects them to death. So what I want to say is that when God um, at the beginning, in light of the first sin of our first human ancestors, uh, subjects them to mortality as a punishment for sin, God in some real sense wills their death. And not only does he in some sense will their death, I mean, he's permitted them to commit the evil. He never wills moral evil. But once the moral evil has been contracted, he does punish them or subject them to death, mortality. And, you know, here's the, here's the bad news. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's not just them that are subject to death, but everybody who comes from them, which means you, me, and everybody else, and apparently even Jesus and Mary. So there's the universality of being subject to death as a decision of God. Now, that's actually the fundamental thing that is kind of reasonable to be a little bit worried about with regards to Old Testament revelation. I mean, all the other deaths are downstream from that death, the death, you know, that follows from the Old Testament that affects all of us universally. Because people are like, well, you know, God sometimes commands death in the Bible. And you know, look, <laughs> it's yours and mine, everybody. It's like really happening metaphysically. We will die. And it's, you know, God exists, he creates the world, he sustains the world in being, he sustains you and I in being, we have immaterial souls created immediately by God, they will exist after we die, but our bodies are going to die, and that's part of the world we're in, and it's somehow by the will of God, because he didn't have, to, he could just keep us from dying. Aquinas, you know, thinks it's natural as for an animal to die, and that is, in that sense, human death is natural, but we weren't created simply to be in the, in the field or zone of nature, but in the sphere of grace. And uh, with grace, we would have been, had we obeyed God, preserved somehow miraculously and supernaturally from mortality as our bodies would have been elevated to a higher state or plane or field of being uh, like unto that of Christ in the mystery of the resurrection, which is now real and is coming into the world uh, through Christ, which we inchoately participate in now. But we weren't made for death, even if in a certain respect, it is natural for an animal to die. Once we forsake grace, we're as it were, in a way, put back into our, we're released into the natural state, apart from grace we chose for ourselves, and we fall into the natural world of death, uh, the cycle of birth and death that is part of us constitutively as animals. Okay, so that's our, our situation. Uh, why would God do that? I mean, why doesn't he just forgive them, you know, give them a good talking to, restore them a state of grace, or maybe restore their children to a state of grace? Or, you know, just restore you or me to a state of grace. Because, frankly, I'm sure death bothers me a lot, at least a little bit more than it did Adam and Eve or somebody else out there. And God should reward me for that by, like, not making me subject to universal mortality. Um, well, of course, that's mysterious. And, 
it does it impugn the goodness of God that we die? I'll just say this. I mean, Augustine has, a, a, I think, a simple and profound answer to this, uh, which doesn't necessitate that God does it the way he does it. It just shows there could be a fittingness in the way God's done things. Augustine says it is befitting that God should subject us to the first death so that we would avoid the second. And by the second death, what he means is, citing the apocalypse or revelation, uh, the eternal separation from God of the spiritual soul in the state we call uh, hell or damnation. God has subject uh, the, the first ancestors of the human race and all those who stem from them to death, mort mortality, bodily mortality, as a punishment for the original sin of the ancestors and also in some sense, the personal sin of the descendants because we do all sin freely and culpably. Uh, often gravely or sometimes in our life, sometimes gravely. And God has subjected us to death in a way as a strange and um, maybe hard to believe, but strange, but real blessing. Because it invites us to accept our finitude, mortality, and our need for God, and to turn to God transcendently or transcendentally to, to find salvation. And, and I mean, I'll just give a small pastoral indication, you know, if you're a Catholic priest, you work in the hospital, you give last rites to someone that every priest does a little of that. I happened to do it for a summer in a cancer hospital in New York and spend the summer taking care of dying people. You do see a lot of people in the, in the, mo in the time leading up to, to death uh, move vertically up toward God because the options eliminate and the mind is uh, focused on ultimate orientations. Uh, in a more general way, the human being has to, I mean, Marcus made it, Marcus is a good example. He gives an example at the very beginning of the talk, you know, trying to understand death and evil. You can start to think about what best ultimate explanations. Okay, so there is a way in which one can see that God, if he's going to rewrite the fabric of being, uh, could decide to do that against the backdrop of universal mortality. Now, everything else that we're going to talk about in a way, in, and I'm going to go through a series real quick here is instantiated in that context because the next things have to do with how God uses our mortality creatively to test our hearts and perhaps put us to the test. And he does things that we could never do to one another as human beings, or he could, in some cases, instrumentalize us to do them in ways we ever ought never to do normally, as so as to make a point that's specifically about his divine, you might say, divine jurisdiction over the domains of life and death. And therefore, his capacity not only to judge us in our mortality, but also save us in our mortality. So I want to take the first case, which is a hard case, and I haven't thought a lot about it, but it's the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. All right, so I'm not one of those people who's going to say that's a medieval, you know, ancient Near Eastern way of understanding. And I mean, I've been thinking you have to say, or maybe that event never happened, and maybe there wasn't a historical Abraham and Isaac. Okay. I'm going to set all those concerns about literalness, literal sense aside, and just presuppose for the sake of argument that that that's not a merely symbolic depiction uh, but that abraham actually was moved by god in prophetic revelation to be asked to sacrifice his son or to kill his son to offer him up to god and uh you know frankly if it were just symbolic it wouldn't change anything of the more because still the, the literal sense would become the moral sense and you still have this problem of the infallible moral sense of scripture like how could a god ask a man to do that to his child well, first of all, the sacrifice, I think the sacrifice of Isaac is one of those beautiful, profound, and spiritually uh, rich passages of the whole Bible, and you can spend your life thinking about it, and Kierkegaard, of course, famously wrote a book about it, which is a flawed book, I think, but a brilliant one. Um, 
the first thing I'd just like to say is it's clearly not meant to placate God. So in the context of ancient Near Middle Eastern religion, there was a frequent practice of child sacrifice, including in regions uh, adjacent to the ancient Israelites in, in, we could say, Palestine, Israel. And that sometimes in the Near Middle East, they disposed of unwanted children by sacrificing them to the deities, a practice that's criticized and repudiated in the Old Testament. I think we have to read the sacrifice of Abraham in the larger context as clearly within the context of that repudiation and not as a, an exception to it. Right? So it's not something done to placate God or as a way to, as it were, claim that human beings have a natural dominion over life and death, that they can religiously discard human life as they will. In fact, I think it's meant precisely to repudiate that idea because it's only by a special and exceptional commandment that's meant to be in some way contrary to or transcending our ordinary paternal nature. It's just not seen, it's seen as an ultimate trial of God to ask the, uh, Abraham to sacrifice his only son. Clearly, there's also a covenantal dimension because the son is here, the, the, the concrete substance of the promise God has made to him. And so God is asking him to sacrifice the covenant. As you may know, in Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it says that Abraham, it's a, there's a little... Um, uh, first century AD Judaic uh, interpretation of the passage. It says, Abraham hoped for the resurrection of his son by faith. Stipulating there that Abraham could not doubt the covenant, but had to believe somehow the covenant would be restored through resurrection. That's very interesting, right? Because that's Christological. So in like hoping in the covenant and the resurrection of Isaac in the midst of the sacrifice, he's in fact implicitly hoping in Christ. Fascinating. Um, but it does underscore, the passage does underscore that God, who is the transcendent author of the covenant and of the creation, can rightly ask us to prioritize him over all such things, all, all created things, and even all, you might say, created grace, the creation of the covenant as a grace. He can ask, in that sense, anything of us, insofar as it could lead us to grow closer to him. And then you get the question or the objection, but he can't ask us to sin to be united to him. Now, you know, William of Ockham argued that he could. Aquinas argues that he can't. So then you have to get into the aspect of, is it formally evil for him to, for, is God asking him to do something formally evil? Now, Aquinas here argues that the sacrifice of Isaac is not formally and intrinsically evil if commanded by God. It is something that transcends the natural law, but it does so without violating it per se, because it doesn't, it, because it's not, and so on the one hand, it is not natural uh, in, in accord with civic justice or religious justice for a human being to offer another human being in sacrifice. In fact, it's contrary to natural law. But God himself can, by a supernatural revelation, ask a person to offer up something or someone most uh, beloved to them for the sake of a supernatural mean that transcends, or supernatural end and supernatural mean, that transcends the, the realm of, of created nature and the, and the ordinary order of justice. In that sense, though, we must also make some caveats about Aquinas' reading, which he himself is aware of, which is, this event is singular in history. It's inaugural for the covenant, by a great, for a great order, order toward the, the testing of the heart of one of the great heroes of faith and the earliest greatest saints, in view of establishing a covenant that will be 
finalized and perfected in the death of God's own son, who becomes human in the crucifixion. I won't go into the question of whether Christ is a suicide, which of course he isn't, or whether God can justly ask Christ in his human nature and his human heart to surrender himself to the death of the crucifixion, which he can. But the, the fact of the matter is, because that is foreseen in the trial of Abraham, Isaac will be redeemed, the covenant will be uh, maintained, and through faith we can be justified in accord with the, the death of the firstborn son of God. So there is a Christological context that's typologically signified and has very real con connotations for how you understand that event. Um, and it is a mystery of grace and faith, meaning mystery, meaning hard to understand, in, in intelligible, richly intelligible, but also outside the ordinary sphere of human reason. Now, I believe that that's the right reading. I mean, that's said rather crudely about the, you know, the, the moral laicity of God commanding him to uh, uh, sacrifice his only son. It also should be said that in light of the whole revelation and in light of Christ, it's, of course, irrepeatable. So if you are in pastoral ministry and someone comes to you and says that they feel moved by God to uh, sacrifice their only son, you can reprove them theologically um, as well as philosophically, and you may also want to refer them to psychological counseling and in fact perhaps to civic authorities and that's not inconsistent actually that's totally consistent uh, because we know actually we know by a priori certitude based on the principle of revelation that they're not moved by god to do that because of the finality of the sacrifice of the cross right? so you do have actually a theological register at which to critique religious fanaticism as the catholic church has always held not everything about the inquisition is bad because you do have to have theological criteria to critique uh, religious delusion, fanaticism, and psychological uh, mayhem. Okay, second example, a third example. I only have five, just so you know where we are, and then I'm done. The, the third example is the killing of the firstborn in, uh, in the book of Exodus. I think that that has to be understood against the backdrop of an ontological consistency about who God is. God is the author of life as the creator, Therefore, Pharaoh, who takes himself to be an avatar of the divinity or an instantiation in a way of the gods of Egypt or the pantheon, he cannot do what he's doing, which is he cannot mass exterminate the firstborn. Political power of the state does not extend to there. Human beings may not take the lives of other human beings that are innocent through the use of civil uh, law or in any, uh, for in, in any other means. However, God is, why cannot do so? Because God himself is the author of life and life is sacred and it pertains and belong, it belongs to God as its ultimate, you might say, source, measure, and end. But just because God is the author of life, he can also take our lives. Remember that I've said at the beginning, it seems that from Genesis, in some sense, he's subjecting us all to the problem of mortality. But he can do it in a special way by sending, for example, a plague. I mean, not like this is happening anywhere around us now, God could send a plague into the world, and he could take the life of the firstborn. And that would be a big trial if God did that. There would be a lot of theological questions if God were to send a plague into the world to take human life. I'm not trying to say the Bible would have anything to say to what's going on in the world around us today. I'm just sort of making a point about an obscure event that happened a long time ago. But in this context of Exodus, the, the teaching, I think, is that God takes the life of the firstborn to manifest his transcendent reality in the face of the idolatry of Egypt and of the Pharaoh with regards to the gods of Egypt, with regards to the Pharaoh in, in himself, and the political regency of the Egyptians that's sacro, been sacralized in an idolatrous way. 
God deals a kind of death blow to their own delusion. He manifests his transcendent authority over life and death, his creative power that's totally unique. And in a certain sense, he manifests his sovereign justice, reproving their idolatry and showing them that he who is the author of life and death is the true guarant of the future of humanity, of the sons of the children uh, of uh, the firstborn, sons and daughters of the children of Egypt, as well as Israel. He also is manifesting his election of Israel and exposing the idolatry of the world. But he's doing all this to heal the world, to heal the world of its delusion, to bring us into a true, to refract our vision. So we see against the backdrop of a world of delusion and idolatry, we are not the masters of life and death. There is a more ultimate standard and measure, it's the creator. And that the creator who can take our lives also can redeem them. Remember in the larger story, this is the one God who can raise the dead, who can alone save the firstborn of Egypt and Israel and who will open in baptism a passage of salvation, not only to Israel, but to the whole of humanity. So there's a real, but hidden, a hidden, but real universalism ordered to the redemption of Israel and all, and Egypt and all of the idolatrous nations that's made manifest, that, that is communicated to us, the universal intent to save is communicated to us in the manifestation of the true God in the slaying of the firstborn. So, um, in a world where punishment is sometimes the, you might say, the dark side of the light of God coming into the world uh, to show us that he can save us, but that we have to recognize who he is and who we are. You could say that there's a kind of a initiative of salvation felt first as justice, setting things back to their true state. We are not gods. We die. We are subject to life and death. God, who's the author of life and death, can rectify our vision and open us to his saving power to raise the dead. Okay, one more. Uh, now, now I come to, uh, well, sorry, I have, uh, yeah, well, I'll take two more examples. Uh, so I come now to the hardest and most famous example, the slaying of the Amalekites. Now the Amalekites are a tribe depicted in numbers, a number of uh, passages of the Bible in different books who are seen as the, you might say, the symbolically depicted in Exodus. They're the first tribe after the Israelites escaped from Egypt. They're the first tribe that make war against Israel, and Israel makes war against the Amalekites. That famous passage where Moses holds his hands up for the day in a kind of cruciform form, okay, and they win on the battlefield. And Augustine mentions that this is one of the first bases in the history of biblical literature for just war. Just war criteria come in, in part from thinking about when does a people have the right to, to defend themselves from extermination. Uh, and so it's in the fight with the Amalekites. That's not so problematic, but as you go on later, uh, you have passages like in the book of Samuel, where uh, Saul uh, is commanded by God to exterminate the Amalekite camp. And that's the problem of the ban or the universal execution of the entirety of the people. That certainly cuts against modern sensibilities, uh, because we have made a lot of the fact that uh, in a just war, the, the only the combatants may be, um, and only in certain cases, may be... Uh, um, objects in which you try to use lethal force. And uh, it looks like, you know, if you want to put it in the, in the most powerfully negative terms, uh, God is commanding genocide. Um, you can, you know, we can note that the notion of war as you might say total war was, you know, a, a feature of the ancient world, but that only gets us, and that, you know, God gave the revelation in that context. He's educating them to uh, the context in which they live. 
um, and therefore the moral commandments are in that context. I don't, I, I think that's too accommodating. I mean, I think you have to say that the, the slaying of the Malachites is kind of causes intellectual scandal that's greater. The other side, you can go and say, well, it's just a spiritual sense. Maybe these just war, these wars never even happened. They could be fictional. They depict something that's like ultimately spiritual. It's saying you have to be willing to do anything for God to protect the covenant. They're about total moral surrender, or they even have a sort of merely Christological idea. It's like you're fighting the powers of evil in the world, the devil, the flesh, uh, the world, and you have to do that in, in uh, according to the metaphors of of, uh, of combat, spiritual combat. As as many fathers of the church did read these passages as having a kind of moral anagogical sense. And I think that that's a reasonable moral and anagogical sense of the transposition of the Israelite vocation to the, trans, to the ecclesial vocation. But I find that wholly uh, inadequate and too spiritual because I think that the, the literal sense here does connote a moral sense that means you have a hard object to defend. So between one extreme of saying it's kind of natural in their context and the other extreme of saying um, that it uh, can be kind of explained away, I would say, no, let's go ahead and take it. Uh, try to do, I, I follow Aquinas in this. Let's say that God has in some way inspired or commanded this in a given historical context. What's the reason? The reason is idolatry. And it's, it, you know, it's got to do with the, it's got to do with idolatrous culture. And I have a very funny view of this. I mean, so Aquinas says basically, um, it's a lot like the sacrifice of Isaac example. You could never do this according to the natural law but God can, in a certain sense, transcend and suspend the application of the natural law in a particular context to make a particular revelation known supernaturally. So he's not commanding what's evil per se for him. I mean, God could, for example, um, without using human instruments, for example, through a plague, he could kill everyone in a village, and you couldn't say that God had done something intrinsically unjust. What's weird about this is he's instrumentalized human beings to do it for a supernatural reason, to punish people, to make clear the gravity of idolatry. And the same rules would apply as for the sacrifice of Isaac. Here's God teaching us about himself as author of life and death. We are to, to, to give our entire life to God unconditionally. And when we fail to do that in idolatry um, and structures of disobedience, or when we oppose those who are in the covenant and fight against Israel, in this case, it would be in our, in our, in our economy, it'd be fight against Christ, become antichrists. When we do that, we lose... Um, in some sense, our right to exist before God. And he, if he maintains us in being, he does so through mercy or according to a certain kind of new economy of mercy. And so what's being revealed through the instrumentality of the, the command to the prophets to execute the ban is something about the transcendent justice of God in the face of human idolatry and human opposition to God's initiatives of grace in history, showing our unworthiness. Now, I would just add to this a weird idea I have, which is I actually think the right way to read this from a Christian point of view, is that we are all Amalekites. That basically what's revealed to us is on some deep level, we who are in a structure of sin with regards to the mystery of God and the transcendent truth of God and Christ, because we in some way blink in the face of the mystery of God or sin, we are in a certain way conductors of a, of a structure of idolatry. And God could, he could, he could kill us all. I mean, we don't really deserve, uh, we can't say, uh, well, that it's absolutely, it's absolutely required of God to preserve our physical life in this world, or it's required of God to preserve us from damnation in light of our own sins. We are kind of Amalekites, but that's not really the, the fundamental story is against the backdrop of all of their, of, of their little part of the narrative that he's not treating us that way. 
He's treating us as persons redeemed in Christ or subject to be redeemed in Christ to be saved and divinized and to be friends with God. And we're not, we're not given anything in the Old Testament about the actual eternal salvation of the Amalekites. We're not, that's not revealed to us. We don't have to make any judgment about that. But I think that the way he uses the fabric of life and death there, although very crude, very ancient, and very um, scary, is also in some way, um, you know, in some way illuminating or could be illuminating. Now, you know, you say, well, I have a lot more scandal of that father than you do. I'll just tell you, there are a lot of other strategies for reading this. I'm taking the way Aquinas takes, and I'm trying to explain it in my own poor words, and I find it more satisfying than the others. But, you know, it's not the church's doctrine. Lots of, lots of other positions exist. If you don't like this one, you can explore the others. I have two other examples I'm not going to go into for the sake of time, and that's the death penalty in the Old Testament and slavery in the Old Testament. But, I mean, maybe that'll come up in Q&A. I think it's good to finish. I took, I took on what I, I think are the harder cases and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to you all to bring up things that you think are relevant. Afternoon, Father White. I was just curious how, um, so in the Summa Aquinas, you know, lays out like the different senses or uh, of taking a passage. Um, and he says, for instance, the allegorical ought to be derived from the literal. Um, but then when, for instance, with the destruction of the Canaanites, I know that um, origin would go more with like the literal is the allegorical or like the allegorical is the only sense there is in this in a way. Um, yeah. But I guess, how would you fit that? Um, if you're going to take a passage as allegorical, um, how you would, you know, it seems to be there's a bypassing of the literal there. So I'm just wondering how you understand. Yeah. So that. I do think that, but okay. So let me just say, when you get to, at least in the Catholic tradition, when you get to disputes about literal sense, the church allows a lot of disagreement. Uh, so some things are not really permitted to be allowed. I mean, the church comes down doctrinally on, on some things. So for example, is the, metaphor, is the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, merely metaphorical or is it literally denoted as an event? Well, the church is really clear about that dog, dogmatically. Like that's a, that's a historical reality. Um, historic and transcendent event, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. But then you get into these, like, these kinds of questions. I mean, I think the church is going to allow, typically, in her pastoral prudence, is going to allow for this, you know, pe this group of people who are going to say, it's too much. I'm just going to say that the, the, the allegorical sense is the literal sense, or the, or the moral sense is the literal sense. So this is basically all about spiritual combat. And there's a pretty big wing of people out there doing that. Um, I don't think that that preserves the literal sense. I don't, I think that's kind of, you know, to me, that's fairly obvious from the text, but, you know, there are sophisticated historical biblical disputes about whether these events happened, whether there were these events of total war, what, what they meant in the historical context. And if God is depicted as commanding them or in some way initiating them, uh, how can we understand the human side of that? But also what does it mean about God within the context of biblical literature? What are they trying to tell us about God. Um, and I think you do have to do that kind of deeper work to get a sophisticated account. But I think you're going to still have to pass through the hard theological question of the, of the, of the formal object of the moral act. So the church teaches, for example, there's some things one met, can never call good. Like it's never a famous example from Aristotle that the church has taken up from him. Adultery is always intrinsically problematic. Lying is a famous case. Augustine and Aquinas, at least, argue that it's never right to lie. 
and you get famous questions of that, you know, can you lie during the Holocaust? Okay, it's the official lie for Aquinas. It's a venial sin. It's disorder that's imposed on you by political circumstances. You ought not to if you can avoid it. So you, but it's disordered and it's not, it's not uh, recommendable, you know, but is the, are these cases like, is the sacrifice of Isaac intrinsically evil? Well, of course it can't be. If it's real, it can't be, God can't command something intrinsically evil, like commanding you to lie or commanding you to commit adultery. That's crazy, right? So you do have this sort of numinous area where Aquinas thinks God can command you to do some things you wouldn't normally be able to do by natural authority, but that are in some way taken up into the sphere of the divine revelation. And in particularly, like they, 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 I think they're all cast against the backdrop of the revelation of God's dominion over life and death. Thank you. Our next question comes from Eileen, who says, in the end, what then should uh, uh, Euthyphro have done? Um, okay, so the way I understand the Euthyphro problem is, does God command the good because he's looking at a higher measure of the good that we also can look at philosophically, or is it just good insofar as God commands it? And Aquinas doesn't really accept either of those options. What Aquinas thinks is, uh, God always commands the good in a double, in a two-form accord. One in accord first, not with the truth that transcends him, but with, in accord with his own truth and goodness. God is eternally sovereignly good. He's wise and loving. He's eternally just and merciful. And he can only command anything to us in accord with his eternal sovereign goodness, infinite perfection. Um, he's free from any evil. There's, you know, God is light in him. There is no darkness. He, he can only command in accord with his own justice and mercy. So in that sense, God is fundamentally true to himself. Secondly, he has to argue, he has to command in accord with the natures of the things he has created. So he can't ask of this anything that's fundamentally unnatural. So you say, with the sacrifice of Isaac and Abraham, what, how could he command something? Is that fundamentally unnatural to God to command him uh, to do what he does? Well, uh, no, <laughs> because... Uh, Abraham is meant for an ultimate good, which is not a father-son relationship with Isaac, but his union with God. And so what Aquinas say is God could never command you to do something intrinsically sinful because that would connote something that would cut contrary to your natural orientation or in inclination to, the, to union with God, which is the final end of all human beings. But he can command you, to, he can command severance from any created means although he typically doesn't. He typically respects the order of nature and asks you to subject it to the supernatural order. But he can, in a sort of almost violent way, command you to pri prioritize the supernatural good in a way that is really transcendent of the natural good. A more ordinary case, Aquinas asks about celibacy, priestly celibacy, and says, is it in the mean of nature? With regard, is, it, is it in line with the mean of temperance according to the order of nature? He says, no. It says the mean of temperance in accord with the order of nature is for a man to get married or a woman to get married and have children and sexuality is moral and ethical in the context of married love open to the transmission of human life. But God can, by to, to facilitate a, a more direct mean of union with God through contemplation and a life devoted to the gospel, can ask a person to undertake a, a, a mode of life that it suspends in a certain sense that natural good not because it's unnatural, it's not per se unnatural, but it's less in accord with the mean of nature and more toward what he calls the heroic virtue of chastity. It's not heroic per se, but it's toward heroic chastity. 
to undertake the, um, uh, the, the, you know, the privation of family life for the sake of the supernatural good. So Christ himself did that. I mean, forget Catholic priests. Christ himself did that, okay? So that's God made man. So at the center of Christianity, you have someone who's not married as the founder of the religion. Okay, so, you know, there, there, is, there is some way in which the natural world has to be turned towards the supernatural. And there are lots of, it's of course, a lot of people would say, the Old Testament's unnatural, would say, yeah, but it's unnatural for priests to get, not to get married. And hey, you know, by the way, Christ was unnatural to practice chastity, if you go all the way with the objection. You know, so you have to be kind of careful to become naturalists in a way that could become anti-supernaturalists. It doesn't mean we should easily condone everything in, in the Old Testament, because there are, there are hard passages there. But we should also think about how this stuff's connected to New Testament. Thank you. Our next question comes from Phil and Joy, who ask, concerning the words morally less perfect in regard to the Old Testament, uh, can you expand on the word perfect with regard to the New Testament? Would you mean less revealed or less completed by morally less perfect? I could be either. I gave different instances, but I mean, to take to take a, a case in the moral realm, that's, I think you know, the, the easiest way to answer this is to look at the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5 through 7. You have heard it said on that mountain back there, thou shalt not um, commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks at a woman, etc. So, you know, you have heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say to you, if you call your brother a fool, you will be subject to the fire of hell. Right? So what's going on there? First of all, interiorization of the law. It's not simply the external acts or even the attitudes that lead to them, but deep purification of the inner human heart with regards to uh, the goods promised by the covenant and the, the evils repudiated by it. But also he promises them the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor, for they will um, inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, uh, you know, for they will be satisfied. You know, the, the Christian tradition sees that as, the, as related to the gifts of the Holy Spirit to live the eschatological life of Christ. And that's the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit more supernaturally uh, proportion us to live in friendship with God in a way higher than was typically undertaken in the Old Testament. Aquinas thinks the Old Testament saints did participate in seed in the life of Christ and in the Beatitudes, but it becomes more perfectly manifest. So a figure like St. Francis of Assisi, who lives the Beatitude of poverty, that doesn't have any real corollary in the Old Testament world to live in the poverty of Francis of Assisi for contemplation and for radical love of the crucified Christ. All that only makes sense in a New Testament economy. Or Mother Teresa going into the ghettos of Calcutta to care for the sick and the poor in, in, in imitation of Christ. That's a life fully uh, manifest with the Beatitudes, right? So th th there's something there that's of a higher moral order and it's not the natural mean at all anymore because it's not natural to do what Mother Teresa did or what Francis Assisi did. It's radically evangelical, it's radically eschatological. It's to live for the higher contemplation of God. You know, so those kinds of transformative ethics of the New Testament, that kind of transformative ethic of the New Testament is, is beyond the mean of nature. The traditional reading here is that the Old Testament in the Ten Commandments begins to embody and evoke in us an awareness of the natural law as where the New Testament builds, intensifies that, interiorizes that, and builds on that to invite us into something much higher, eschatological life with Christ. Thank you. Our next question comes from Ben Birkenstock. Hi, thanks so much, Father White, for uh, coming to speak at this inaugural event here. I'm Marcus's classmate and very 
um, I guess I could say proud that Trinity has, uh, has had you as our inaugural speaker here at the Thomistic Institute. Um, I'll try to be, to be brief. My question, I guess, um, I, I suppose I can preface it by saying that I am one of those who is m more comfortable perhaps than you with doubting whether God really commanded those things. Um, mm -hmm. If that's really what's being pointed at, it's a literal reading in one sense, um, but whether that literal reading is really pointing to a historical circumstance where God historically actually inspired genocide or, or whatever, the slaying of the Amalekites. But I want to get at it um, from a different angle or, or ask a slightly different question, which is this, this notion that death is um, something that God can sort of justly bestow on us. Um, this might have to do with God's permissive will. Like, to me, it seems that God doesn't, I'm hesitant to see God as, you know, ordaining death, at, even biological death, as the punishment for sin, as opposed to simply the result of original sin and of sin in general. Um, I have a scientist friend who likes to say even, you know, trees and mollusks by their nature don't die. They're genetically, unlike humans, they're genetically immortal. They die often in, in this world of, you know, a lot of external influences, but, you know, a lot of biological, even nature itself is sort of yearns naturally for eternal life. There's not a sort of, uh, yeah, imposition of like, death isn't the natural state for, for something that God has drawn out of non-being. So I'm wondering if, if death is only something that God permits. And in, in that case, I would say it's problematic even to say, um, and this might be my modern side, you know, the plague that wiped out the, the village of idolaters was something ordained by God, you know? Um, it, it seems to me like we can, you know, then why do we have a problem with the Inquisition or the Crusades? Or uh, at some point, if, if God can use secondary causality to, to cause death or any reason to cause death, um, doesn't that, isn't death just something that God sort of permits as a vehicle for, uh, to bring us into greater union with him, but is an, an, a natural consequence of our sin as opposed to God designed us deliberately in such a way that we would die, um, isn't any sentient creature that sins going to subject itself eventually through strife or and whatever to you just ask it. Okay, so I think um, I mean, there's, a lot, there's a lot of questions, but let me just ask you, are do you, in that last, are you suggesting there that other sentient creatures sin? Um, I mean, like, if, uh, if there's aliens, I'm saying that they, they might sin too. Okay, and but you're not saying like bacteria sin or like dog no, no. sin. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm saying if there, if there were other non-human creatures with... I'd be surprised at things I've heard people say. I mean, so look, I mean, let me try to respond because there's a lot there. I mean, there are alternative ways to see this. Um, let me just say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I do think that all living things other than human beings die. And you have the question of whether there's uh that's somehow marked cause is the cosmos marked by human original sin and another related question which has been raised by people like paul griffiths duke um is animal death or vegetable death or microbiological death 
it related to the evil angels, the fallen angels who brought that kind of death into the world. I think that that view is very um, close to a Gnostic view, that the fabric of the mortal life in this body is in some way structurally marked by evil. And so I reject that view. As for whether human uh, animals died because of the human death, that is a view that is not taken by any scholastic author I know of in the Middle Ages. So you do have some fathers of the church who wonder if, you know, the lion and the lamb die because of the human original sin. I don't believe that's true. I think, I think that they are created mortal. I do agree with you that the dynamic of individual species is to imitate eternity through the reproduction and communication of their own like kind to other individuals of that same kind. And that the collective whole in the dynamic evolutionary process is in some way uh, maybe eschatologically orchestrated toward uh, the imitation and consummation of things in the eternity of God. And I'm open to the idea that there will be individual species of animals in the new creation, although definitely I don't believe that individual animals survive death. Uh, so I, I don't really think it's right to say animal death is a, as a result of sin or that all death is bad. I think that there's a way in which even our death as animal death after the fall has something normal about it. There's something natural about death. So when people say it's natural to die, they're right in a sense. Um, that's my own view. It's a very common scholastic view. You can find it defended by Matthias Schaben in his book, Nature and Grace, but I think it's consistent with Aquinas. With regards to the divine permissions of, that's just my view. We may disagree about that, but I'm just trying to see, you know, with this theology, we talk, talk about it. Um, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure it out. And I'm interested in what other people think. As regard the permissions of God, I mean, yeah, the permissive will of God is real. It's distinct. You could say it's, it, we're denoting something distinct in the effects of God from what God volitionally wills. Okay. And I think it's fine to say that God, you know, permits us to die or fall into death and he only wills our death secundum quid on the condition that we've committed sin. I think we can't say he ever wills us to do anything evil. Um, but, you know, look, I mean, there's different ways to read the biblical material. In a certain way, way, I think that it's helpful to underscore that everything that's happened in the realm of human death is permitted by God. On the other hand, as I read the biblical material, uh, God does in some sense, can in some sense, discreetly meet out uh, his, I mean, God willing death for someone doesn't have to be a punishment. I think God willed that Therese of Lisieux or Catherine Siena die a most holy death on this, at, like when like when Catherine Siena dies at the age of 33, which is symbolically in the Middle Ages, connoting the death of the, the age of Christ, you know, there's a Christological configuration. It's a beautiful death. And I think we can say that God can will a person to have a saintly death. So I'm nervous about saying that, like, we have to kind of... Uh, quarter off death as a holy evil thing. I mean, it's just, quote unquote, it's just death. Uh, it's not the end of the world. It's, it's it's the end of a state of being. And after that, we'll be with God in our spiritual souls, and there's the resurrection to eternal life. So um, I think we disagree on this. I think I see the Bible a little differently, and I do think there's, you know, kind of more, as it were, regency, voluntary regency of God. At the same time, I do want to ward off ideas of God as arbitrarily or despotically acting as a vengeful father, you know, coming to beat up on us because we didn't do what we're supposed to. You didn't eat your peas, go up to your room and die. You know, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. We should repudiate like, you know, and I, and I think you're worried about that view. I think that view is out there and um, I think you're right to be worried about it. And I mean, my view would be more likely to fall into that. 
uh, and I'm worried about that caricature. So I would have to defend myself from it in a more extended conversation. Thanks. I thank you for that uh, difficult uh, and helpful, you know, observation. We have one last question from Catherine, who's asking, does Aquinas say anything in particular about reading the Old Testament without the light of the New Testament? Is that a type of error and something that Aquinas responds to in his works? Yeah, I don't think it would ever occur to him that you could do it. I mean, he's so he's so enrooted in the medieval Christian understanding of revelation. And even though as a Dominican, he sees the scripture as a kind of central word from God that illuminates all other church teaching. I mean, he believes in infallible dogmas, uh, but they're in a way downstream from and derived from scripture in his theology. And that's a you know common Catholic position. It's there's complicated debates about how to hold positions about that topic. But I don't think he really believes that the divine revelation is intelligible apart from the Old and New Testaments read together. And the other thing is that he doesn't really read the Old Testament as like an Old Testament. He just reads it as prophetic revelation. I mean, he quotes from Lamentations or Jeremiah just in the same way he quotes from John or Paul. However, it's all within a Christologically centered and theocentric, Trinitarian theologically centered understanding of revelation. I do think it's probably, you know, it's probably fair to worry about whether God, I mean, whether Aquinas would say, going back to Ben's question last one, whether, whether Aquinas would talk about God willing something like death in human beings. I mean, I'd have to, I haven't like looked at carefully at that, although in the commentary on the Romans, I mean, he's very careful to say God never wills eternal reprobation. Yeah. I mean, he's really care about that. God does never, God never wills that a person be lost um, eternally, but whether he can will any natural good or evil to us, like with regards to, I haven't looked at, you know, it might be that I'm injecting some modern language into Aquinas. So I would like to look at that more, like when, how does he talk about death and the permissive will of God? Because sometimes, of course, he does talk about it that way. God's permitted us to fall into death. Um, so anyway, I, I leave that open as a field of research. So I just have a question, a curiosity about, um, uh, could you expand on Aquinas' understanding of God's immutability uh, as pure actuality? How do we hold that God is immutable and purely actual in one hand and his, uh, his interaction with us on the other? Thank you. That's a massive question. That's a different question than the one I was invited here to speak on. I, I, uh, I've been writing about that. I'm just going to say very briefly, um, uh, we tend to think about divine immutability in quasi-physical terms, like God is not moving around or emotionally immobile terms. God doesn't have new feelings or new or God or intellectual terms. God doesn't have new thoughts. He doesn't learn from us. He doesn't know what's going on in the world. He doesn't react to us. Um, I think all that's a lot of uh, anthropomorphic consideration, but in any case, that's not what divine immutability means. I mean, divine immutability means God maintains or preserves uh, his own identity. God is always God. You know, we're not going to wake up someday. We, we might wake up someday and there won't be a sun, right? We'll be cold pretty quickly and that will be the end. But, you know, the sun could come to cease to exist. We're not going to live in a world where we wake up one day and God has changed, is no longer God. So in that fundamental sense, like it's just obvious God's immutable. He will always be from eternity to eternity. And then you have the question of um, whether he has perfections that can be alien he can be alienated from. Right? So could God cease to be omnipotent? 
if he did cease to be omnipotent, I think the world would start 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 would would fall away from being because it's all he can only sustain the world in being and create it as one who's omnipotent. So what about other attributes? Could he cease being good? Could he cease being all knowing? If he's all knowing, I think he is. That's the classical tradition. Um, you know, then you get it. So in that sense, you start to see immutabilities about something important. It's about the fact that God is always God and he always has these attributes. Is God always Trinity? Is God immutably Trinity or did God become a Trinity like at the incarnation? Well, no, he didn't. Um, so, you know, or is he becoming the Trinity as in Hegel, you know, histories and lectures on the history of religion? The Catholic Church, at least, reproves that idea that God could become a Trinity eventually or is becoming a Trinity progressively. You know, so in that sense, the, the divine, that's, that's kind of an indication of the work that the doctrine of divine immutability is doing.